You are listening to WMNF Tampa. WMNF is your community radio station. This means that we are a nonprofit and we do not play commercials. Keep us commercial free and support your favorite shows like this one by donating. You can even do it now before our pledge drive on February 22nd. Click the tip jar at WMNF.org. Here comes the sun, Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today we are going to be talking with several organizations that will be at the Florida State Fair, which runs February 9th through the 20th. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the ever-diligent Annie Ellis. (laughs) Yeah, I was busy. (laughs) (laughs) So stay tuned as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet, which is the definition of sustainability. Now, uh, like I said, we're going to be interviewing several people who will be at the state fair. And the reason why we're talking about the state fairs is because they began... More than 200 years ago. I was really surprised at this. To focus on sustainability and agriculture. So the state state fairs all around the country, they began in the 19th century for the purpose of promoting state agriculture through competitive um, exhibits of livestock and display of farm products. So you might go to the fair and say, wow, there's several animals and plants here alongside all these rides in cotton candy. <laughs> but it's actually the other way around. The so main, there were no rides in cotton candy. Yeah, the focus was agriculture. <laughs> there was corn on the cob, probably. <laughs> well, it started in Massachusetts with a farmer named Mr. Watson, and he raised this uh, specific breed of sheep called Merino sheep. And he was so proud that he brought two of his sheep to the town square in 1807, <laughs> and he drew a crowd. And then every year he would bring his <laughs> two sheep, three sheep, and then eventually like a little parade. That's the ne- that's the next sentence. <laughs> then he started a little parade of oh, sheep. Okay. And then by 1811 he had organized the Berkshire Agriculture Society. So he had a group of friends and families and farmers, and they all showcased their local agriculture. That's fantastic. And then it just kind of went all over the U.S. Every every state was so proud to show off their agriculture for that. Uh, season or the year. And that is why we're talking about it because agriculture, we need food, fiber, and that's where we get those things from agriculture. Yeah. Well, and and people, you know, some people eat meat. uh, And then also, yeah, the fiber. I mean, merino wool is like the best wool ever. And cotton. Yeah, cotton. That's true. So agriculture and sustainability Ever linked. It's amazing how much you know. If you just if you don't skip that part of the fair, <laughs> you a lot of people I think just zip through it and they miss so much because there's going to be all kinds of different booths and stuff. I know that Kitty Wallace is going to have she's going to be there with the Coalition of uh, Community Gardens and there's so many. I just got an email about that and it's like I can't even. There's so many. I don't. I want to say at least a. 50 to 100. And that's just Central Florida. Yeah. yeah. The only ones that she's involved in. Mm-hmm. And it's it's incredible. So they'll be there to answer questions, to get, you'll be able to actually sign in and they can uh, call you later to give you more information to hook you up to, so you can start your own community garden. That's funny because I have been to the state for probably every year for the past 10 years. Uh-huh. I've never even walked or looked at the rides. 
Really? Oh, that's but it's the opposite. Yeah. That's funny. I don't go to the fair because I don't, I, you know, it's funny because I associated junk food mm-hmm. with the fair and I don't eat junk food. That I'm, just started about 50 years ago. Well, so, so the first 150 years was all really late, agriculture. I'm a late bloomer, anyway. I guess. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I, but of course, my, my favorite then when I was little was cotton candy. I mean, but I, it was a, you watch them do it too. I don't like the pre made anything. You know, I like to see it happen. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a new day. Yes. All right. So we have quite the lineup. And yes, the, we do. The first uh, guest we have is Hillary. Hilary Consuesa. That's right. And she's going to be representing the Rare Fruit Society. Rare, Rare Fruit, Fruit Council. Council that's Tampa right. At, and their booth and the fair. So hello, Hillary. Hey, Hillary. Hi, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you on. Yes. So I think we forgot to mention that you're the current president. Yes, she is since May. Yes. Since May of last and, year, right? And I've been informed that I'm the second president of our uh, female president of our chapter congratulations i love that and they said that they think i'm the youngest one also well look at you you're just breaking <laughs> all kind of rules here records that's fantastic and i know that the uh the rare fruit council has been around for how long hillary do we know about that so our tampa bay chapter was founded in 1978 mm-hmm. and actually helen ellis was one of our original founders oh one of my relatives in the back huh yeah <laughs> And um, the original chapter, it's the Rare Fruit Council International, and our original founders are in Miami, and that was 1955. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and we're international. We have chapters in Palm Beach Mm -hmm. and um, just all over now. All over the world, or is that... Um, I'm not sure if uh-huh. we're all over the world, but we're in Florida. For we're sure. We're in California. All so. where the rare fruit would be, I guess. Yeah, where tropical climates yeah. exist. Yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. So what's going to happen uh, for uh, the Rare Fruit Council at the fair? So this is one of my favorite events of the year um, next to the mango tasting that we host. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be at a different, if if you've been to our citrus celebration before, we were in a different building before. This year, we're going to be in the a larger building, the Special Events Center, which is near Gate 3. And um, we're going to be there on February 19th, which is a Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you can come and taste so many different types of citrus, like oranges, grapefruit, kumquats, pomelos, mandarins, and um, calamondin. And then we also like to follow up with the education on those um, types of fruits for the home gardener. We want people to follow through with actually um, being more sustainable and growing their own fruit. Yes, and y'all, people are saying that even with the greening, if you're conscientious, you can still grow citrus now, right? Well, there's different ways of navigating through the HLB, the Hulong bacteria and the greening and the Asian psyllids that carry it. Mm-hmm. They're finding now um, there's something called tree guard. So when your tree is young, it's like a little tent that you can get to put over your young tree. Yeah, I saw those in the, out in the country. Uh, it's a netting yeah. that goes around it. It's really, really fantastic and affordable uh, for the home gardener. So you're and saying that if you get it on there quickly when it's a baby and you can get it to grow a certain uh, uh, 
height or depth that you're in better shape and it can manage better as it gets older? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Like any like any fruit tree, the older it is, the more mature it is, the healthier it is, the better able it is to fight off any disease. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I, I know that there is nothing resistant, totally resistant to greening, but there are citrus more tolerant to it. And there are ways to make your citrus more tolerant to the greening. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Kenny? So, so Hillary, we have an email and it's not really a rare fruit, but I was wondering if you could assist. It's from Gib and they say, we always love the show. I have a few strawberry plants just for fun. Probably get two or three strawberries ripe every day and I pick them. And a couple of my plants are sending out runners and they were wondering if this is a normal occurrence for strawberries to send out runners and they kind of starting new plants. Yes, that's totally normal. And you can actually clip the runners too once they're established. And then that's a whole nother strawberry plant. So um, that's what a lot of the farmers will do. So what they do is they can just tuck that little end at the end of the runners where the plant will grow. And you can tuck it into the soil right there, even pin it in. And then after it gets a good amount of roots, you can clip that runner piece that's supplying yeah. it with its own nutrients. Yeah. It'll make the it runner will. Yeah, the runner will naturally root, like naturally marcot itself. Um, if it doesn't, you can, like she said, bury a portion of the vine um, and it will root. And then you can clip the connection and it will be two to separate plants. Then. Sounds good. And then Hillary, they have another question. Um, is Are the strawberries going to continue growing all the way, like for a full year, or do they have to plant them again no. next season? <laughs> no, they don't like the heat. And also they get a lot of pest pressure. I find that the hotter it gets, I have to start bagging my um, uh, my strawberries with organza bags because um, the birds get really thirsty and peck at them. Mm. And also the, the cutworms mm. love them. Yeah. The pill bugs were getting some friends and uh, what they started doing is putting um, uh, seaweed underneath it. Uh, they were gathering it from the beaches oh, okay. and they're putting it like a cushion underneath it. And it was really reducing the pill bug infestation. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's I a good idea. All right. So I want to ask about the mango tasting because I know that's a big deal. Yes. And, you know, sure. one of the big things, uh, that is one of the things that the uh, Rare Fruit Council, if you're a member, well, I guess we can have guests that come. Then We it, opened it to the community thanks to some donors. Yes. We opened it to the community last year. We were able to afford that. That's in June, right? So we typically have it in July. Oh, July, we're okay. To, we're now going to move it to June, though. Oh, okay. Because Hurricane Ian really affected a lot of the um, the mango growers. Oh, I remember the scramble last year. Everybody yeah. was trying to find the mangoes to get up there to have enough for the uh, last sampling. Year was a, yeah, last year was a really early bloom yeah. for a lot of mango growers, which me, which meant fruit was ready earlier in June and not so much July when we typically had our tea. And it's really surprising to me that I did not know how many varieties there are. There are so oh, many. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. I mean, you can taste anything from a mango that tastes like a peach to ones that taste like orange sherbet ice cream, oh, which yeah, is the orange sherbet. a big favorite, a big hit. Yeah. And then fantastic. you have people like me that like the sour stuff. So there was a new one called O15 that I just loved that was more, uh, to had more of the spices. A tang and too. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So I think Kenny has an email over here. Yes, we do, Hillary. It's from Mike in St. Pete. He says, hi, great show. My lychee tree is blooming 
this year and last year there it was blooming but no fruit how can i help this tree along it's three to four years old any tips hillary okay so I am the queen of killing lychees, so I'm a bad person to ask. I have tell us, a lot tell us of, what not to do. Okay, and I what can. Do you do? Don't I do that. can, and it's a lesson. Um, even as avid of a grower as you are, you are always going to learn lessons. I learned mushroom compost has salts in it, and lychees do not like salts at all. They're very salt intolerant. Mushroom so, compost has salt in it. I did not know yes, that. I learned that yes. now, right now. So. Okay. Keep it away from anything that has a lot of salts in it. So they do not like well water. If you have salts in your well water, yeah, that can affect the fruit set and the health of the tree. And if you have it in a pot, if the person, hopefully they have it in the ground uh, because the pot will build up salts as well. So that's interesting. You know, I heard a lot of people didn't have lychees last year. So it might've been something that was in their, our season, you know, whatever that was. We had that late freeze last year, that mm-hmm. crazy late freeze where I lost a lot of trees. Yeah, 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 and that's true. That's probably what it was. Yeah. How are you doing over here? Year. All right, so Hillary... Can you just remind uh, listeners where they can learn more about the Rare Fruit Council of Tampa? So if you go to our um, website, it's www.rarefruit.org. And that has all of our information on what we're about, how we're about serving the community and community education. It will discuss how to become a member and um, when our meetings are and where they are. And we'd love to have you. We have um, plant raffles at every meeting, a potluck. Uh, we have a free seed table for members. So you also have a speaker every week. Uh, it's so we have great. Had some, such wonderful speakers. We have had Ian DeCampbell from Mango Home uh, Mango Men Homestead. We've had Harmadim. And so many more. The Nonas. We're out um, of time. <laughs> that goes so fast, doesn't it, Hillary? But, but we hope people visit and the state fairs, your booth at the state fair, and your yes. your club at your please, meetings. But yeah, well, please come to the I, meetings. They're great. I'd like to also add, we're going to have a booth again at the USF Spring Plant Sale on April 15th and 16th. Wonderful. Oh, very good. I'll be yes, there. So come see us. I'll we be have there. Rare fruit, That's right. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you so much for, call, uh, for zooming you. in. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you at the cutting. We'll be citrus cutting at the fair. Very good. (laughs) All right. So we have one. Thanks, Hillary. (laughs) So we have one message, and uh, it's uh, Bubba. And he is giving us the perfect uh, segue into our next guest. Oh, excellent, Bubba. Bubba You're on time. Bubba says, I don't like rare fruit. I prefer my fruit like my steak. Well done. (laughs) And with that, we are going to welcome Jim from the Florida Cattlemen's Association. Hello, Jim. Hey, Jim. Good good morning. How are you all today? You're doing great. Sounds like you're having fun. Yeah, we're always having fun. (laughs) So, Jim, can you tell us your role with the Florida Cattlemen's Association? Yes, sir, Kenny. I'm uh, I'm uh, Jim Handley. I'm the executive vice president with the Florida Cattlemen's Association. We are headquartered in Kissimmee, Florida, and we've been in existence since 1934. Oh my goodness! And can you tell us, does Florida raise a lot of cows and cattle? Uh, yes, sir. We uh, we are very proud of our industry. It's uh, we had the first cattle on the North American continent come to Florida in 1521. My so we, goodness. We've uh, we've been around taking care of livestock on this 
this uh, beautiful peninsula uh, for over 500 years. Um, no idea. And uh, it's it's somewhat of a hidden industry, but we we uh, uh, have approximately uh, 1.6 million head of beef cattle, all classes, all ages, all sizes. 1.6 million uh, cattle here in the state of Florida. Very good. On about on about 15,000 operations. Wow, that's a lot. Now, uh, Annie was surprised by how long you've been. growing uh, the cattle but as a former ffa advisor and agriculture teacher that's definitely on the test (laughs) it is yeah oh yeah the dates i always just filled in whatever yeah (laughs) so jim as you know our show is about sustainable living and a lot of people when they think about cows they think anti-sustainability so can you talk about some of the steps that you have taken to become more sustainable with the cattle well, certainly, we uh, we we are very very proud of our environmental uh, stewardship and environmental care and practices we give to the to the uh, to the woods and the water and the pasture land that we are able to oversee. But from a standpoint of sustainability, we are constantly working to improve the genetics of our cattle to make them <clears throat> certainly more heat tolerant and more efficient in that they can consume rough. The neat thing about ruminant animals, they can utilize uh, roughage uh, and, and utilize land that is not suitable for, for just about anything else. They can, they can uh, consume a lot of fiber. And of course, a ruminant has a four, four chambered stomach and they can, they have a microbe a population in that stomach and they can break down a lot of uh, cellulose and, and convert it into amino acids that uh, that help them grow. And so we take advantage of that, but we're constantly trying to work with our researchers to improve our cattle and improve their efficiency so that they can, uh, can, can better uh, be adapted to our hot, humid climate with a lot of parasites and, and problems and uh, sustain themselves and raise a calf that we can ship out of here and um, uh, continue the cycle. That's, that's one uh, of the things a, that we do here. Isn't that one of our biggest import of uh, cattle are the, uh, the young calves? Yeah, the cow-calf. Yes, but, yes, we are a cow-calf state, which we have cattle on approximately 6 million acres in the state of Florida. The average stocking rate uh, in the state is 6.5 uh, acres per cow-calf unit, and what we do is raise feeder calves, and they ship off of their moms uh, at like six to seven months of age, and they average weigh in 550 to 650 pounds. Wow. And and then mother, mother rebuilds herself and raises another calf the next year. And we're exporters of, of uh, calves to primarily to Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, some will get up into Nebraska, and some will go into the Midwest in the uh, in some of the corn-growing region of uh, Indiana or Illinois. Uh, some go to Missouri, but primarily the big four states that receive our feeder calves are Texas, Oklahoma. I'm just curious, how Texas. old is a 500-pound calf? Uh, they're typically uh, in the six- to seven-month range. Okay, thank you. Um and 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 uh, they'll go on to a further growing and finishing phase. 
but we're the we're the we're our production unit is a is a is mama cow, and she converts forage into pounds of beef while she's maintaining herself. She's making milk and raising a calf by her side, and as that calf grows a little bit and her rumen develops, that calf's grazing right along with 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 mom. Can we can utilize uplands, wet you know wet areas, marshes, and by doing so, by grazing that, we keep the understory down and we keep that that grassland um, in a vegetative state. So if it's continuing to grow then those grasses are pulling uh, nutrients out of the water and pulling nutrients out of the soil. Mm-hmm. And we ship those nutrients out of here in the form of five and 600-pound calves. We are net exporters of, of, uh, of, of phosphorus in the pounds of beef. That I never thought out. about it as being uh, clearing the areas uh, on that lower levels. Yeah, that makes sense. When I taught agriculture in Hyde Park, you know, downtown Tampa, um, my, not a lot of cattle there. Not, not a lot of cattle, but <laughs> my current neighbor, when she was going to that school, maybe in the 50s, 60s, she said that her dad took her out of school for the day, drove her to Plant City to see Brahmin, so these like Indian the cattle. Bulls? Yeah, come like off a train because they were being introduced to add oh, to the genetics. Oh, that's when they first just brought them in. Wow. Well, I just saw that they were added in like the 30s, but... She remembers vividly being taken out of school to see this new cattle breed. Wow! Being a, do you guys raise those at all, or is that something not done? Uh, 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 yes, ma'am. We continue to maintain for for our cattle to really uh, do well in this climate. We need to maintain uh, an eighth to a quarter of Brahmin in. Oh, that's why they brought that in because of the temperature. Programs. Okay. That's right. and, and they 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 do well. They maintain th- themselves well. We have an abundance of forage, and we have a long growing season, as you all well know. And, and certainly in a non hurricane year, we have say fifty to fifty five inches of rain. Of course, we get these big flushes when you when you have a seventeen or twenty inch hurricane like we suffered with with Ian. But but in a normal growing year. We're able to to uh, keep our cattle and keep them in good flesh just on the the uh, the high yield of our forage. Now, My goodness! So you don't even have to uh, give them hay or anything; they can just do it well, on their own. I was going to say we have to supplement them in the winter month for okay. about one hundred and twenty about one hundred and twenty days, unless wow. there's some anomaly. If it were to freeze real real early, or because the grass goes dormant, and it's certainly the nutritional quality decline right so cattle can't physically consume enough to get the energy and protein that they need so in that window of time we have to give them some supplementation but there again we can utilize a tremendous number of byproducts and recycle it pushing it through uh, livestock we use a lot of molasses based liquid feeds you know that are that are byproduct of the of the sugar industry we use a lot of citrus pulp and rations um, we use a lot of distiller's grain that's a, a byproduct of either an ethanol plant or, or frankly, a, you know, a, a distiller of an alcohol. That's interesting. I saw some farmer at the back of a, a beer making place, and I was wondering what they did with that stuff. Because I was thinking about, can you use that for mulch? And I'm like, I don't know. That might not be. And so I bet that's what he was getting him for, for his small amount of cows. Wow. Yeah, we use it. It, 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 it it's a little bit of a challenge because a lot of those microbreweries are in high metropolitan areas. Yeah. They don't have storage. And so 
they seek out farmers that can take them and and uh, and again not they don't have to send it to a to a landfill right recycled, it's getting used again recycled. that's great mm-hmm. yeah um, and, and it's utilized uh, I wonder if the cows get a little drunk I, I don't think so <laughs> it is, it is uh, there is certainly a fermentation process but I think most of the alcohol is gone okay but uh, they may I don't think they do <laughs> they're a little little party out there <laughs> so it's, uh, it's high moisture. Yeah. yeah. So you you have to learn how to handle it. It's not the easiest to transport, right? Things like that. But yeah, people use it. It's 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 common. But there again, it's taking advantage of a of a byproduct. But we we do that. You know, there's byproducts from the bakery industry. There's mm-hmm. byproducts. My granddaddy used to give up corn but when there was leftover corn that had hardened out in the field. He'd he'd give it to him too. Oh yeah. It's All right, man, Jim. It, do you have an email? And this is from David, and he says, Hi, Kenny, Kenny and Annie. Great show today. I used to work for the Florida Focus Book Publishing Company, Pineapple Press. Oh, yeah, and we published a great, a great book around 1998 called Florida Cattle Ranch by Bud Adams. I was so impressed by how much environmental stewardship the big cattle ranches perform in Florida, and I think that many people here don't know that. In Florida, it seems we are more concentrated with growing ugly houses and less on preserving our environment. Agreed. All right. So, Jim, can you tell us, if people are visiting the fair, where can they find your exhibit or <coughs> building about the Florida Cattlemen's Association? Well, at the State Fair, we we have a wonderful working relationship with them, and there is a, a uh, it's a permanent exhibit, actually. There, It's there oh. year-round, and it's over uh, just outside of what's referred to as Cracker Country, which is that old Florida village. And there's a steam engine there, and there's a building that houses uh, five centuries of cattle ranching museum exhibit, uh, it, along with uh, an, an exhibit that showcases Florida's forest industry. And it's right over by the the uh, entertainment building, um, um, but it's right off of Cracker Country. Uh, um, it's easy to find. Will you will you uh, have cattle there? No, ma'am. We don't. There's actually a, a actually a, a, a stuffed uh, Florida cracker. Oh, wow, now. it's like trigger. <laughs> There's not a live one, but but that that illustrates the original cattle that came to Florida, and frankly, that one was genetically linked back to the original Andalusian cattle that came in St. Augustine. Oh my goodness! And it's a real colorful, uh, uh, kind of a smaller, smaller mature cow. Um, that's not real, real big, but it's, it, it, it illustrates what we used to have, what we started with. So all those um, kids, do they bring their little cows out there? That's our next guest. Oh, it's going to well, be Kenny's story. Okay. <laughs> there certainly, certainly is a big livestock show component. Oh, good. They bear, and they do a wonderful job. And yes, ma'am, you will you have a chance. I love to, to see the animals. Of, <laughs> a lot of young people showing all types of animals. Certainly, we're proud of the beef cattle element of it, but... Uh, uh, it's a wonderful way for young people to learn, to learn responsibility, to learn some business ability, to calculate, yeah. you know, how they have to care for their livestock and to understand the, the, the cycle. But, yeah, you'll see a lot of smiling faces with with the lead shanks showing off heifers <laughs> and bulls you know, over the, throughout the fair. It's and, interesting, uh, you know, because it teaches them consistency, you know, too, on that. You know, they have to take care of that animal every Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Every day. Responsible. 
and they have to make sure he's properly cared for with feed and water and clean out their yeah. their living quarters, you know, their stall or, or paddock, depending just on... Make sure they're not sick or anything. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And pay attention to them just like we do our young children. And it's a responsibility. And, mm-hmm. you, and you have to answer the bell. If you went to church yesterday morning, you probably had to go feed your calf before you went to church. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Jim, for calling yeah, in. Yeah, thanks a lot. We encourage listeners to visit your building. Yeah, and go to the Cracker Museum. That sounds like a lot of fun. I went to that a long time ago. It was a blast. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank you. We're very proud of our industry and uh, the gentleman that wrote, uh, of the, referred to Bud Adams. Uh-huh. Yes, he is a tremendous steward of the environment, and uh, we're proud of the water re- aquifer recharge and environmental services that ranchers provide every day uh, to the great state of Florida. Well, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. We all need to work together, don't we? Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you for your interest, and I hope you all will enjoy uh, some of the best protein that you can find. We're vegetarian. Later today. (laughs) Thank you, you, Jim. But thank thank you. you. Bye-bye. Now, uh, Jim and Annie mentioned the Cracker Country, and we have an email from... Karen Brown Blonigan, she says, there's also a kitchen garden at Cracker Country that has some of the plants that would have been grown in the 1890s. She, and then Karen. I'm interested in what that is. Karen plays the dulcimer, which is from Appalachia. It's a beautiful instrument. And she's there um, every day, except for Sunday. She's either in the church or on the back porch of the Smith House. And she says that the Cracker Country Museum is all about the sustainability of rural Florida. So you can, you know, there's lots of science and things like that. And they also always have heritage. Well, historically, they've had heritage chickens and geese also next to that uh, 1890s kitchen garden. So you can check that out. They have some lumber stuff, too, and how to cut stuff and things like that. I remember that. That was fun. And then we got an email from Kitty Wallace. Okay, good. She says, there will be a cool booth at the fair featuring several community gardens. The Coalition of Community Gardens will be providing information on community gardens. <laughs> across, <laughs> There's a lot of community gardens. Across the west <laughs> central coast of Florida. Also, the seed folks will be there with uh, children's gardening products. The and seed folks. Yeah, that's like capital, so I guess it's a company or brand. Oh, okay. And she says, also, the well-fed community will be doing some demonstrations on using vegetables and healthy recipes straight from the garden. that's fantastic. So we'll learn how to use these things we're growing. That's right. And now we have a brief message from Mr. Bill. Have you considered your plans for the rapture? On your ascension up to heaven, it'll be too late to make your donation to the Sustainable Living Show and to WMNF Tampa, so do it today. Just go to WMNF.org and click on the tip jar and direct your donation to SUL for the Sustainable Living Show. And now might be a good time to consider donating your car as well. All right, very good. And now we have Mr. Kenny Gill on the line. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Kenny. Hey, how is it going? Can you guys hear me fine? I'm worried about reverb. With now this we can Zoom. hear you perfectly. Yes. Yeah, as soon as you moved your mouth towards the mic. All right. That so, worked. Kenny, can you tell us uh, what your role is in the Hillsborough County School District? I am an ag science teacher here in Hillsborough County Public Schools. Um, this is my third year with an inner city ag program. Here that has in, flown uh, by. I can't believe it's been three years. You know, my first year. I'll just getting my toes in the water with, uh, you know, that pandemic we had. But this year and last year, we've been going full force and trying to build this program up so we can uh, 
compete with the best of them. So what do you do? What do you mean compete with the best of them? Um, you know, being a, the FFA is a youth development program. Um, mm-hmm. And through that, there are a lot of competitions that students can participate in to gain recognitions, scholarships and awards and things like that. Um, with the Florida State Fair coming up, as your last guest was talking about um, sort of uh, getting to um, youth showing livestock and things like that. Um, here at the school, we don't have any large livestock, but we do have some small livestock. We have a flock of poultry um, as well as a um, mini Rex rabbit that students can show at the fair. Uh, right. And so, what is a mini wax mat or uh, a rabbit? <laughs> A mini Rex is a breed of rabbit. It's a, ours is oh, a blue-eyed white, a so you know, you see the tip. <laughs> Sorry. No, um, yeah, mini Rex. Rex. Uh, and, so, and what it's is it? It's a cute little rabbit. Uh, it's a blue-eyed white mini Rex oh. that we got from a breeder over in Dade City. So I told my kids, if we're getting a rabbit, we're not having a red-eyed rabbit. Those things are a little bit creepy to me. Um, but this one's cute. And do you have the rabbits in your school or do the kids grow them at or raise them at their house? So a lot of uh, my students live in housing situations where they wouldn't be otherwise able to have livestock. So our our rabbit lives here um, at school with us as well as our poultry, though. I do have some students who keep poultry at their houses um, and um some students who are looking to get into keeping poultry, as many people are right now, um, with the egg situation. Excuse that noise for just a second. <laughs> the kids have to go to the next sure, class. <laughs> That's yeah, the bell. Students will be <laughs> but in any case, so yeah, there's a there's a competition that students can do. Going back to that, um, here in FFA, um, schools can sign up depending on what their students are interested in. We did a career development event where students competed um, sort of like a brain bowl um, where they show off their knowledge of different industries. So there's a citrus competition. There's a dairy and uh, cattle judging uh, competition. But my students did the poultry competition. And this year, um, it was my goal to qualify with my students for the state competition going to the next level higher. And they blew my socks off, man. These kids studied for it, and they placed 13th out of 65 teams in the state. That's fantastic. Um, so now at the state fair, in addition to some students going to show their poultry knowledge um, through showmanship and exhibiting their um, birds, there's a special competition where they'll be competing against the top 20 teams, I believe it is, for um, the state title, and they'll get recognized at the – um, state convention in Orlando this summer if we get a top five finish. So that's exciting. I'm, I'm pushing them along, hoping taking in everything that we've been going over in class together. Can you tell us what some of the questions or topics or knowledge that they need to know is? Do chicken have teeth? <laughs> um, so for the CDE, they have to be able to look at different um, live specimens of birds. And they're going to have to determine, uh, it's called poultry uh, layer hen um, placing and ordering them from the like highest quality to the, the least productive. And there are traits that you can look for in those birds to determine, you know, how productive they've been. 
Um, there's things like looking at, you know, when you go to the supermarket and you buy eggs and it says um, large grade A eggs, well, what does it mean to be a large grade A egg? Um, and there's other grades of eggs as well that are often used for products that are processed that don't end up on the shelves of the grocery stores. Um, so students have to be able to look at an exterior of an egg and determine what grade it is. They have to be able to look at the um, interior of an egg. Obviously, they crack it open on a plate and then they look at it and based on certain characteristics, they can place you know, the egg into its correct category. Looking at different cuts of meat and determining do they know all the different parts of the chicken? Do they know the difference between a split uh, breast uh, with rib meat, split breast without rib meat, boneless, skinless, you know, all those different things that we typically take for granted at the grocery store that most, mm -hmm. you know, 13, 14 year olds don't really typically know. Yeah, I was thinking that listeners are probably thinking like, why would a kid ever need that? But that's where we if get our food from. They're, if they're raising it, yeah, they, or, they need to know. Or butchers or the grocery men need to right. know that's what, true. what they're cutting, what they're preparing for you. That's true. They, they could even go into that field, these as are, a matter of fact. These are good life skills. Uh -huh. My uncle worked at a supermarket. Um, when I was a little kid, I remember him coming home with his apron and all and throwing it in the wash. And he would, um, you know, be there with the, the birds and, and, you know, getting them ready for the supermarket. So we didn't have to do all that ourselves. All right. So your students are competing in a knowledge-based test and they're also showing rabbits in poultry. So physical. And um, what, can you tell us what other FFA students are doing? doing at the fair? Because I, I know uh, when you go to the fair, people always see those kids in those blue jackets. Well, and you're also doing some competitions with decorations and stuff too, right? Yeah, so we have a creative competition at the fair. Um, youth organizations like 4-H, FFA, etc. are able to participate in these creative contests. Um, one of them is the hay bale decorating contest. <laughs> and so you're given a very large hay bale, round bale of hay, and it's your job to kind of envision what you want to do with it. And so that's a fun kind of classic fair um, activity. And my students have been uh, taking it really seriously this year. You know, last year we we got a fourth place finish and um, it raises money for, for chapters too. So that's why they're taking it so seriously. Um, these programs are not cheap to, to run. So anytime we get a chance to do these kind of competitive events where there's uh, some prize money that we can put back into it. So this year we put our prize money from last year, uh, part of it up into the the event to buy materials and things. Uh, but besides that, we're also doing Ag Ventures on February 17th. My students and I, excuse that bell one more time. Yeah, Kenny's calling in from school. <laughs> so he's so nice to do this. So that's what we're hearing, the real school thing happening. I've got some of my upper level students running my class right now while I'm oh, in the very office good. looking at them through the window. But on the February 17th event uh, is Ag Ventures, where uh, over there, I believe it's in the Ag Hall of Fame, they have different uh, tables set up and different stations where my students will be teaching the public about different aspects and doing little different hands-on activities with children and um, the public to teach them, you know, where food comes from and what are the, the byproducts and how are we trying to be sustainable and utilize everything so that we're not generating waste um, and, and harming the, the environment. So you told me about what y'all did last year on the hay bale, and I want you to tell people because I think it's fantastic. 
So our hay bale last year, I can't give away this year. No, yet, no, that's why I'm asking about last year. What we did was our round bale is um, on its end. So the flat portion of the round bale is sitting flat. We cut out plywood. So it made like, you know, where you take uh, two sheets of plywood, you cut a notch in it and they fit together. So it right. sort of creates this three-dimensional effect. Right. Um, and it was like a little round handle on top of the bale. And then we did the same thing, but created a giant honey dipper that's like seven <laughs> or eight feet tall. It's almost, I think it's a full sheet of plywood tall. And um, then we painted our hay bale to look like a jar of honey. And then we had some little rectangle hay bales off to the side. And we put little wings on them and we painted them to look like bees. So we had a whole <laughs> honey and bee. I love one that. of my students, she's a senior this year. One of my students this year, she's a senior and um, she is into beekeeping. So um, me having just gotten into beekeeping around that same time, we kind of like, uh, thought, oh, that would be a good, a good theme for our, our, uh, hive. but you know, pollinators and that type of thing, it's become a very, uh, in vogue type of topic. So, um, we had some other school who did a honey bee themed one as well. Uh, it was kind of funny to see out of, you know, there were maybe like 10 different, uh, entries and two of them happened to be honeybees. So that was really cool to see that other people are thinking about the honeybees and it's a pollinators big, big and that topic well. these days. Yeah, people and are listening. To confirm, the hay bales are at the fair, and then you go there and decorate them because the hay bales are so large, right? Oh, those are those giant round. You're, you're not decorating it at school and then bringing it to the fair, Kenny. No, so we're working currently on like things that we're going to be utilizing to decorate our hair, kind of uh, our hay bale to kind of like um, prepare. Um, ahead of time because there's a lot of little things that, that go into it and um, but no we're, we're taking all of the components there and kind of assembling and 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 putting on the final touches they do like last year when we got there the hay bales were you know in, a, in an area more or less near one another and we did have to kind of like maneuver them and they're quite heavy if you've never moved a hay bale before it, it's not a one-person job especially if it's rained recently now, you mentioned that your students will be doing the Ag Ventures uh, public teaching, teaching the public about agriculture on February 17th, but every day, maybe one or two times a day, they have different school groups. So pretty much no matter what day you go to the fair, you'll be able to interact with the FFA kids and see what they've learned and see how they teach you. Yeah, then you can learn. So That's, that's correct. Yeah, there's different schools doing it every day. All right, and then Kenny, if people are visiting the fair, where else, where, where should they go to see the FF? Like, what section of the fair do they get to see the kids? And all the animals. That's what yeah. I want to see. So, <laughs> if you if you go to the area, I believe it's around Gate Three. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you're going to find a lot of the uh, barns and the uh, special events center, and like all of these kind of uh, Ag Hall of Fame. The livestock barns and and all that type of stuff is all around gate three i believe um so what's an ag just hall follow of your fame? nose uh, that's funny what's an ag hall of fame ag, ag hall of fame is a building on the the fairgrounds where oh. they have um uh, all the notables oh it's like a permanent uh, place oh okay yes Yes. So yeah. it's just to honor all of the historical figures in Florida agriculture and also the 
products that we produce in Florida. Very good. good. Kenny, if you have one more minute, um, we're going to take a call, and this is Gwen in Tampa, and I think she has a question about growing dates, and we know you grow a lot of fruit. Hi, Gwen. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for being on hold for so long. (laughs) Uh, I've been getting dates through the mail from, I don't know, you might have heard of Sunnyland Farms in Albany, Georgia. Okay. They're delicious, the dates are. And I wanted to know if I could plant some here in Florida. Good question. Kenny, do you have any experience with growing dates? Did she say dates or Yes, dates. Uh, It's a palm fruit. Yeah. Have you ever started Um, a date seed? If you're planting dates, um, the first thing you need to know is that the trees um, only produce male or female flowers. In order to get fruits, you're going to need both a male tree and a female tree. In order to find that out, whether they're male or female, it's going to take some years. Um, 25 to 30 years before that tree ever flowers to recognize whether it's a male or a female. So um, I typically buy my dates from the grocery store. <laughs> Get them from time. Georgia. I mean, you could start it as a novelty if you wanted to, just if you like to start plants. Yeah, you could, for sure, absolutely. You know, I mean, people grow date palms, see them around. Sure. They're, they're not... Um, Paul has some type of a, Paul, uh, some, there, there's a lot of different types of dates too. So, you know, that particular Correct. one is the one that really people look at as the delicious date. But, you know, there's a lot of pinto palm. It has a, a, a flower, a date on it as well. Um, but uh, yeah, you could probably, I don't even know if you can grow those here. Can you, those particular types of dates? Yeah, I just want to try. Sure, go <laughs> ahead. Try it and, and report back. Report, Let us know what's going on. Report back in 25 years. <laughs> and, and, and you should probably plan maybe... A lot. <laughs> four or five to make sure you have a good yeah, combination. Yeah. All right, thank you, Gwen, and Thanks thank you, Kenny. Thanks for calling. Thanks, no Kenny. Problem. Take care, guys. Bye. Appreciate you. All right, and he has to go back Appreciate to teaching. Thank you. <laughs> All right, and on the line we have Lisa... And Lisa, I think, is going to be telling us about some events that are happening oh, in the good. area. Hi, Lisa. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks good. for calling in. Oh, yes. Well, we have some really exciting stuff. I wouldn't miss it this week because <laughs> tonight we have the annual meeting for the Sustainable Urban Agriculture Coalition, and it will be held in St. Petersburg at Enoch Davis Center, 1118th Avenue South. And that's today from 6.30 to 8 p.m. And hot off the presses. The founders of the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival, Samantha Harris and Boisel Hosey, will be having an unofficial collard green cook-off. Oh. And come on down and vote for your favorite vegan greens. So they're actually making, uh, they have the, the parameters that they had to make them vegan. So uh, they're going to be having a little cook-off tonight as part of their presentation. And Where then, is that? And uh, how, uh, what time does it start? Oh, yeah, I already said that. That was at uh, the Enoch Davis Center. Uh, so it's 1118th Avenue South from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Okay. And it's open to the public. So, yeah, it's open to the public. Just come on down. And uh, we have it's our annual meeting, so we're having some other uh, things talking about what we did over the past year and what we have plans for the future as well. Fantastic. So this Saturday, it's another big event. Uh, this is going to be at Eckerd College. It's called Gaining Ground, Food Systems, Conversations, and Collaborations. And it's a guided discussion uh, a networking event around and developing collective solutions to our food system challenges in Tampa Bay. The event will be, again, at Edward College on Saturday, February 11th from 3 to 6.30 p.m. 
whether your work and passion is around addressing hunger, food access, urban agriculture, sustainability, gardening, eating healthy, local food service, or another uh, related facet, uh, we'd love your perspective and ideas to be included. This event is free and open to the public, and they are asking for an RSVP since there will be food uh, to the St. Pete Center Facebook page. So, again, it's St. Pete Center on Facebook, and you can RSVP to their event. And, again, it's this Saturday. And last but not least, I know I'm running out of time. The no, Tampa no, Bay- you're good. Okay. So the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival, that is a huge event. It's the sixth year. It's going to be uh, this sat- uh, sorry, th- next Saturday, the 18th. And that's an all-day event until 5 p.m. There's going to be yoga. There's going to be a whole urban agriculture area uh, surrounding it about sustainable food systems. We're going to have speakers. We're going to be making the largest salad in the Bay. <laughs> all these different. If anyone's interested that has an urban garden, uh, like a community garden or education garden that wants to be part of our big presentation, you can reach out tonight at the uh, SUAC event. Or you can reach out to me personally at thelisapineda at gmail.com. Again, it's T-H-E-L-I-S-A-P-I-N-E-D-A at gmail.com. And we're, last year we had 30 gardens contribute one oh. of, one of their, uh, the things that they grew. And we made this beautiful, huge salad that over 100 people. Well, this year we're trying to top that. So if anyone's interested in helping me out with that, that would be great. And we do it kind of a la stone soup. So uh, every the, the traveler is going to be gathering all the different ingredients from the different gardeners. So uh, please reach out and we can uh, make it happen. That's beautiful. I love that idea that everybody's going to be uh, creating a big giant salad together. Yes, and then eating it together. That's yeah, better. even better, right? That's wonderful. Doesn't Eckerd College, Eckerd College has that big food for us too, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. We had him on here, the professor there. That is, they've really uh, just made huge strides in that area uh, late in this last year. Well, Dave Himmelfarb will be there with the uh, Eckerd College Community Farm as part of our our featured uh, garden. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually going to be doing a presentation in the urban ag area as well. So, oh, that's uh, great because he's, he's terrific. He really yeah, is. He is. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for calling in. Really appreciate you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa. All right. So if you're interested in going to the State Fair, you can go to floridastatefair.com. And what we've been talking about is mostly agriculture because that's sustainable themed. And uh, remember that adults and the 4-H kids and FFA kids are all competing. There's a beef show, boar goat show, and then there's knowledge-based. There's dairy goat, dairy cow show. There's a llama show. Now, the llama show, you would think <laughs> most people are like showing their animals, but they have the llamas go through a little agility course. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow, an obstacle course for llamas. <laughs> and then they right. also have the poultry show, a pygmy goat show, rabbit, uh, youth sheep, Steer, pigs, swine, too, they? Yeah, and they also swine. have an agility dog show. Oh, cute. But because um, they don't have the adults and the kids competing at the same time, right. like half of the f- the first half, I'm making it up, but one half is adult and then the second half is for the kids. That makes sense because the littles and the bigs. So when you go, it's uh, February 9th to the 20th when you go. Remember, there's more to the fair than cotton candy. And uh, they had... Uh, fried dough flavored beer last oh, year. Oh, God. They always have some <laughs> crazy deep fried something, right? <laughs> you know, like a triple fried Oreo Oreos, inside yeah. of a something else. But a remember, pig ear. there's other things to the fair 
like yeah. agriculture. Yeah, and you know, I think they probably have a lot of uh, like specialty plant things. Like it's maybe there's an orchid booth or there's, different flowers and things like that. Begonias, maybe. I'm not sure. There's a lot of clubs that do a lot of showing off. Yeah. So, you, you know, you can go to those and see these beautiful things that they have. I don't know if there's fruit trees for sale, but there's definitely house plants and ornamentals like that orchids. It, that sell and them? Thing. Yep. Oh, that's nice. Well, you know, you can learn about the fruits uh, from the Rare Fruit Council, and they can talk, talk to you about the trees and when to plant and what to plant and that sort of stuff. Because different areas require different uh, zones. You can't just grow like she was talking about the dates that she called in. I don't think those are dates that you can grow here. Although if she gets them from from Georgia, I don't think they're growing them in Georgia either. I think they're, they're bringing them in. Uh, because I did some research on that a long time ago because I love dates too, you know? And, and like Annie was saying, that Florida is different zones. Yes, we have a lot of different zones. Because the state fair is in Tampa, people from the north and the south are all coming to here to showcase their agriculture. And like I remember in the... Florida State Fair. Yeah, the Florida State Fair, the Ag Hall of Fame, there's the peanut, the Florida Peanut Association. And they usually have some uh, samples. <laughs> Do you like peanuts, Kenny? <laughs> and, but you can also um, get some. I love bulb. You can also get some seed, so you can grow your own. Oh, okay. I've I have uh, the art, the ones that you can't eat. I have the the perennial yeah. peanuts, but I mean, you guess you could eat them, but uh, desperately. All right, now, Annie, do you want to give a 30-second uh, appeal to, about our fundraiser that's happening in oh, two yeah, weeks? Oh, yeah, please. Remember, our fundraiser is coming up in two weeks, and we will take any uh, any donations at any time. You can go to our tip jar and give us uh, you know, any kind of donation to help us keep this going because we love this, and we think you love it too. So the more you can do for our station, we're all community-supported. So it's that is you. You are the community. And next week, it's February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day, and our theme is sea turtles because everybody loves sea turtles. So we're going to be having a uh, PhD doctor from Moat Marine on to talk about his sea turtle research. Yeah, I'm interested in that. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF Tampa's Monday Music with Fleet. If you want to hear more public interest programming, switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, to listen to today's Tom Hartman Show live. And make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We'll have Raleigh Barnes with Apollo Beach Garden Club and Community Forest Garden. Um, And... uh, you can always go to Listen On Demand for any of our shows. I'm Annie Ellis. And I'm Kenny Coogan. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye-bye. Bye. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right. You're listening to WMNF Tampa.